Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. Our current economic system has brought incredible material comfort for many, but severe deprivation for many more. And it has brought us all to the brink of climate catastrophe. Is there a way to stop the relentless drive for more, to make the material benefits more widely shared, and to save the planet? My guest today believes there is a way and has just written a book pointing some possible ways forward to a better future. Tim Jackson is director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity and professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey in the United Kingdom. For three decades, he has pioneered research on the moral, economic, and social dimensions of prosperity on a finite planet. His landmark book, Prosperity Without Growth, was a Financial Times Book of the Year and appeared in 17 foreign language editions worldwide. He recently published a new book titled Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, which we'll discuss today. Tim Jackson, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you, Helena. It's a, it's a privilege to be here with you. Well, I loved reading your book, and I wish we had a time for a whole day seminar. I have so many questions to ask you and so many wonderful things to talk about. Uh, and I encourage all the readers, uh, all our listeners to read your book. Um, but let's start with just the basic question. Why did you write this book, Post Growth? Well, you mentioned uh, Prosperity Without Growth, my, my previous book, Eleanor, and that was a book that started its life as um, a report to the UK government about what prosperity might mean on a finite planet. And, and although the government at the time wasn't that interested in receiving that report, even though it was from official advisors, that, that report kind of found an audience that I never expected it to find of, of ordinary people um, around the world um, who, who wanted to take part in that conversation about, I suppose ultimately about the kind of society that we want for ourselves and and the values that drive it and and so in a way post growth was my uh thank you to them for all that interest in the work and and it was written in a very different language it was written in the language th that wasn't for policymakers um wasn't for economists although it deals with some economic concepts it's it's a book for ordinary people and it tells the stories of some extraordinary people who've inspired me and and it and it begins to unravel you know those those questions about the kind of society that we want to live in and the kind of people we are yeah fantastic well it's a fascinating book um i want to start with your title post growth hmm. because when i first heard the title i immediately was not interested because it seems to me, as humans, we love to learn, we love to explore, we love to grow. So what do you say to people who would would argue that it's kind of anti-human to be post-growth? Yeah, I think, I think uh, well, I hope the book is, is, is very profoundly human and profoundly humanist. And, and the title, in a way, is a little bit of a legacy from my decades of work, which have been looking at economic growth. So I wanted to think about, you know, what happens after economic growth stops happening, this relentless expansion of the economy. And, and in a sense, you know, 
after that place where economic growth stops happening is a place where that human growth can take place and can take place more easily, can take place more vigorously. And, and that's the space that I was pointing to. But it was a, you know, it was a, it was a difficult title in a way because I'm I'm known for that debate about about you know a post growth economy, and um, and certainly when we were talking about it, the publisher, you know, there, there was a sort of sense that this was still the right title, um, and and with that you know rather provocative subtitle, life after capitalism. Um, but interestingly, when uh, the, there's a German translation of this coming out soon, and interestingly, when the publishers, you know, were thinking through titles and, and we had quite a long discussion about it, we chose actually a title that, you know, that you might, you might, ordinary people might like better than, than something that's just referring to that economic debate. We called it, um, how should we live? Mm -hmm. Just very simply that. Right. I think that's a fabulous title. Um, and... I'll I'm going to see if the edition. I'll see if we can change it for the next edition. <laughs> that would be great. Well, you dive into kind of an understanding which should be obvious to everybody, but it really is not yet. But this relentless drive for growth is just chewing up the entire planet. We're destroying species. We're leading to deforestation, ripping out the lungs of the planet when we rip out the forests that help the oxygen get clean. Just kind of this rapacious consumption of all our natural resources. And on the, on the other side, as we process all this and drive the cars and do the machinery, we're polluting all the carbon and all the other uh, bad stuff into the atmosphere. So it's not sustainable. We cannot continue on the path we're on right now. But the question is, how did we get to this place? Like, why are we living in a world where humans are destroying the very foundation of our life? And you point to that when you point to the whole underlying myth of our society about the myth of growth. And I'd like for you to talk about the foundation kind of the internal narrative we play about how humanity came to a place where we're destroying that which sustains our own life on earth. Mm, yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? And I, I think it, you know, in a way, one of the metaphors that I use in the book is this metaphor of health. Um, and And health is really interesting to think about because health isn't about having more and more of anything. It's a kind of a balance between having enough of something and having too much. And, and there's definitely parts of the world where, where people still don't have enough to lead a decent life. And then there's also parts of the world, and, and this is a fascinating insight, a fascinating statistic to me from the World, world Health Organization that, that more people die of diseases of overconsumption than than die of malnutrition, undernutrition now. And, and that's, you know, that that to me tells us a little bit about what went wrong when we when we didn't have enough, a system that allowed us to have more, to build secure lives, to have clean water, to have secure housing, to have good energy supplies, clean energy supplies. Th that sense of wanting more at that stage, if you like, you could say that was that was clever it was justified it it did bring people out of poverty it did improve 
the conditions of people's lives. But because the system that we built it around, this capitalist system, kind of always has this mantra of more. It just doesn't know where to stop. It's about accumulation. Marx said it 150 years ago, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and the prophets for capitalism. And, and that's kind of how it's been. And we've that's in a way, that's why the post-growth part of the title matters, because this growth-based capitalism that we have and its mantra of more just does not know where that point of balance is. And so it continually works for more. It continually encourages us to desire more. It continually produces more and attempts to produce more and organizes the way that we work around producing more and more. And, and that's a place where, where we find ourselves out of balance. And I think, you know, for me, that, that's why that, that metaphor is so important. It's so central in the book that we get pushed out of balance, not necessarily even in our own interests, but because of a system that drives us continually towards more when actually sometimes it's less that would improve the quality of our lives. Exactly right. Do you know Lynn Twist by chance? I don't. Oh, you're going to love Lynn Twist. (laughs) She's an American who does these seminars on how to get off of the more train and uh, how, and it actually she is working with the indigenous in Ecuador and she talks about the indigenous people where they have a division of labor and it's the men's job to go out and you know go hunt the deer or go hunt the wildlife and kind of bring it back but it's the women's job to say okay that's enough don't kill anymore because you do that, then we won't have the offspring for next year and so forth. So I find it a fascinating idea that, you know, in every culture, in a way, there is a drive for more and that there needs to be some checks and balances. But in advanced capitalism, there doesn't seem to be very much of a check on that. I mean, like, where are the women saying enough? Don't don't kill any more species, don't rip down any more rainforest. So what do you see as that could be the check that could help restore a balance? Well, ultimately, I think, you know, nature provides her own check, ultimately. Um, and and that's that could happen in a very drastic way, a very unpleasant way, a tragic way, um, if we don't find those checks and balances ourselves. And, and it's very interesting that you talk about that, you know, that gender differentiation. And I, I, part of me, partly because I'm a man, hopes it's not entirely true that it's only women who know when to stop and when enough is enough. But, but you're right in the sense that there is that sort of, you know, it's a very... ...devise those kinds of, of, of characteristics in people, the characteristics that are about this kind of gung-ho, macho, frontier spirit that, that never knows when to stop and is continually out there. And, and we've lost the incentive structures that actually could rein in that frontier capitalism and talk in terms of, of sufficiency and of boundaries and of understanding our own limits as people and learning when is enough and one of the people that I talk about in the book is uh, is an ancient sage called Lao Tzu and and he he says just very simply that enough is enough is enough to know 
And it's just, a, you know, it's a wonderful when you, you have to get your head around it a little bit. But that idea that that's really all you need in order to have a good life is to figure out what is enough and, and where that line lies. And, and you know, where, where that, I think, can come into our culture, and I think we learn it a little bit interestingly in our own personal health, is that, you know, if we begin to pay attention to our health, we, we begin to pay attention both to the kind of inputs to our lives and the outputs from our lives. We begin to, we begin to refine that balance in ourselves at the personal level. And in finding that balance, we actually begin to discover a different land, a different culture, a different world in which actually, you know, we feel better physically, we feel better mentally. And, and that's something I think that, that does motivate people. And, that, and it, it sort of, gives a lie to that sense that all we are is selfish, hedonistic, voracious consumers who never know when to stop. Because in the pursuit of our own happiness and our own health, we do know how to stop and we do know how to regulate and the body itself regulates for us sometimes. And, and I believe bringing those principles into our politics, but also bringing them into our economic system and perhaps bringing a little bit of, you know, um, the, the female side of our own nature and the, the sense that the female side has of sufficiency and balance into our politics, that that is, that is a direction of travel. That's somewhere we can go where our lives will be not Spartan, grass, shirts, you know, sandaled, um, Puritan lives, but actually a richer, fuller, more fulfilling place to be. Exactly right. And I, uh, I find it interesting. You know, there's a lot of discussion in the economics community. I mean, I, I have a degree in economics from Yale as an undergraduate. So I know that language and I follow some of these debates, ecological economics with Herman Daly. And there's just an amazing richness of conversation. As you know, you're helping to lead some of those conversations. Uh, but I do notice a strain in that conversation where there are those who think that the capitalism is so strongly embedded in the way our society is structured and in the way that we think and the way that we live. And time is so short, given the climate catastrophe we're hurtling into, that they propose more kind of redirecting capitalism so we have green capitalism we have green growth and it is true everything we do we need to do in an environmentally sound way it is true there are huge investment possibilities in investing in renewable energy the whole clean green economy and a whole range of other kind of regenerative agriculture and so forth what do you say to people who say it's not about the end of capitalism? We don't have time and we don't have any clear cut alternative. What we really need to do is harness capitalism for green growth. Yeah, I mean, I, my my own work in this field for 30 years has you know started out in in technology, really. It started out in those technological solutions that you're talking about and the people who talk about green growth broadly are arguing that there's enough technology out there to save us and it can do the job all we have to do is to get big swathes of capital into that 
you know, reinvesting in those kinds of technologies and everything will be fine. Now, I, I still believe that technology has a huge role to play. But over the years that I've been working, I've also watched as successive governments, successive countries, time and time again, fail to implement the changes that are needed to, to protect our environment. And they do it in the name of growth quite often. They do it in the name of this idea that what we should, you know, <laughs> there's, there's some wonderful sort of comedy sketches. There's a couple of Australian artists um, who, who talk about this, you know, and it, growth has become a kind of mantra for politicians. You know, when we get growth, then we can solve all these problems. If we have enough growth, then we can solve climate change. And, you know, even if we don't know what climate change is or don't even agree with it, yeah, sure. As long as we have growth, then everything can be fixed with growth. And and you know that that the fact that a couple of comedians can now lampoon that position tells us something about the, if you like, how thin the thinking is that goes into that. Because as we as we know, as history has showed us, as our own um, economic history over the last few decades has showed us, that pursuit of growth undermines everything. It undermines our, our social fabric. It undermines inequality, it creates inequality. It undermines the integrity of our environment. And, and I wanted in this book to create a space that provided a, a different kind of perspective. And, and in a way, you could say, uh, um, I don't know if you you must have seen the cover of it, and your many of our listeners probably won't. But it's a picture of a sofa on an empty beach, and it's it's a kind of you know it's 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 people argue about what it actually means. But to me, what it means is here's a place where you can sit and think in quiet without the pressure of that outside world, and sometimes that's what we need to think a little more deeply and that pressure that we have coming down the road at us because of the you know how fast climate change is happening of how much has to happen um and and doesn't that mean we have to keep capitalism because you know otherwise we're all just going to be ruined and we won't know what we're going it's like we're rabbits in the headlights and we we suddenly under the pressure of that that force of that imminence of potential destruction, we stop being able to think clearly about our society. And so I wanted this book really to be just one place where we could just take a deep breath, settle down on that sofa, think a little bit more deeply and understand some of the reasons why for all the potential of technology, we have to think more deeply about the kind of society we want to be if those technologies are really to help us. And I appreciate the great depth of thinking that's reflected in your book and also your incredibly wide and deep reading that you do, which I love. <laughs> I think we have like 10,000 books in our library here, but um, let's talk about that. I want to explore that with you because I think part of why people grip on to what they have unless they feel there's something substantial that has a good chance of success that's going to help them that they can move to. So you say you wrote the book to build the foundation for a post-growth narrative. Talk a little bit about what you would see as the new story, like not about relentless growth, but what's the new story? Yeah, I mean, I think that that news story starts with the, with the, you know the question of balance and the question of enough, but it also um, it also allows us, I, I think, a glimpse into a 
a very different place, uh, a very different sense of what we mean by progress. And I, I use an analogy in the book of, um, it's a very specific geography, but it's close to home here. It's um, a place called the Norfolk Broads, which um, has been an area where people have sailed recreationally for um, probably centuries. Um, and, and at one point, you know, they built a bridge over the one of the rivers, which was too tall for the sailing ships. And, and, and so they, you know, instead of kind of saying, well, we're just going to bust through this bridge. And instead of saying, um, we're going to give up and turn around and go back, they, they just adapted the sailing ship so you could lower the mast and get under the bridge. And, and now in the modern age, the sailing ships can get under the bridge. And when you go under this bridge, you find yourself in this land, um, which is, which is quieter, more serene. In fact, only sailing ships can get over there under there because the the motorboats that plow the river the other side of the bridge can't ever get through this bridge and so so the the metaphor the, the story if you like is that if we think of the bridge as a limit and the fact that we have these limits in our lives these material limits that are imposed by the finiteness of the planet by the shortness of our own lives that we, we have choices there you know, if we build bigger and bigger, we can never push through those limits. If we turn around and go back, we'll never learn what's through the other side. But if we can take the limit itself as a kind of lesson, a learning place for us, we can adapt to it. We can lower the mast. We can push ourselves through the bridge. And on the other side, we can have a place where we have learned new skills, where we have new freedoms, where we're less rushed and harried where there are no fossil fuel motor cruisers bouncing sailing boats off into the banks of the river where where there is a different sense of progress and a different sense of ourselves and although that's that's not a you know it's not a direct answer to your question it's the kind of metaphor that i have for this life after capitalism it's it is a a richer place it it is a place where we can um pit our skills against the challenges of the world and in doing so learn to be richer and fuller human beings we have more time with our family we have richer friendships we have stronger communities we have lives in which we never stop growing in that human sense because we have stopped growing in that materialistic sense and, and that i think is you know that i think is the the lesson that the idea of limits brings to us. Yeah, and you talk about part of the foundation of a, a post-growth narrative is understanding the nature of prosperity. Uh, talk a little bit about what you see as true prosperity. And of course, we know you've already mentioned in the current system, there are people in any country and around the world that don't even meet the basic material comfort yet. So mm. we're not saying stop and let all those people freeze in place and starve. But uh, but assuming there's still some continued activity to help bring everybody up to a basic standard of living, talk a little bit about what you see as the nature of true prosperity. I mean, it's uh, it's very interesting when you go back to the the word itself. Prosperity comes from from two Latin words, pro and speres, and and speres is the word for hope, and and so pro speres really means in accordance with our hopes, 
And, and that's what prosperity meant in its original meaning, in accordance with our hopes, in accordance with our dreams, in accordance with things turning out well for us. And, and that's a much, much broader sense of prosperity than, than the one that was coded into capitalism as income. And, and what's even more interesting, and, and we found this fascinating in, in my early work on, on prosperity without growth, we had a whole program around redefining prosperity. And I've continued that on actually for almost a decade, two decades now. And, and when you ask ordinary people what matters to them, sometimes, of course, they talk about income particularly if they they have insufficient income to have decent lives but almost always at the top of that list is health and family and friendship and community and being able to participate in the life of society and having a sense of fulfillment in their in their work and outside their work and having ultimately being able to 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 have a hope for the future that that makes sense of their lives and and what is absolutely fascinating to me about that is that, you know, when you think about what's gone missing by narrowing down our sense of prosperity to income and creating a capitalist system that's destroying our planet, the thing that's gone missing is hope. And, and so prosperity so narrowly defined has actually undermined itself and left us without hope for the future. So that's that's a and that's, you know, interestingly, you get that from ordinary people when you ask them what prosperity means or what the good life means to them. You get it from poets. You get it from wisdom traditions. You get it from indigenous people. You get it from religious faiths. And it almost seems the only people you don't get that from when you're asking about prosperity is economists. And, and, and it's inside economics, actually, that that has gone wrong, that prosperity has been cashed out almost literally in terms of money and income and wealth. And that's not ever really what it meant. Right, and you have a fascinating description of the origins of capitalist philosophy and economics. <clears throat> and looking particularly at this issue of the uh, survival of the fittest as kind of the guidelines for our economic system, which um, even with all the reading I've done on economics, I did not know that that was not originally from Darwin, that the survival of the fittest actually came from an economist, Herbert Spencer. So talk a little bit about that metaphor or that theme, as which truly underlies so much of our economy and our, our world right now, this survival of the fittest metaphor mm. where did that come from and why do you think it's flawed and what can we do instead well it, it came as you say it came from from uh, herbert spencer and herbert spencer kind of was writing after darwin about the implications of evolutionary theory and you'll find a lot you'll find ev almost everybody that you talk to um thinks that we are selfish people because of evolution and Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, back in the 1970s, you know, kind of it, it created a, a sort of idea of ourselves that has been very, very persistent. It's been it just hasn't gone away. We still think of ourselves as selfish and that that selfishness came from our evolutionary roots and that there's nothing that we can do about it. And I think 
you know, I, I'm not saying that that we're all angels. I'm not. I'm definitely not making that case that you know altruism is our predominant characteristic. But but what I am saying, I suppose, and this is evidence that you know psychological evidence backs this up that we have alongside those selfish characteristics that did help us in the evolutionary struggle, we also developed social characteristics. We developed altruistic characteristics. We were concerned for other people. And that concern for other people actually was our humanizing characteristic. It, rather than selfishness, actually led to the evolution of homo sapiens and the, and the expansion of our culture and it rather than selfishness was what gave us the solidity through which we could lay down stability to have families and to build communities and to build society itself and and what has happened in a way is that that metaphor of selfishness has taken over that broadest perspective of our different characteristics and and it's done it even in evolutionary theory itself so for example when you look at um, where darwin got the idea of um, fitness and the idea of selection from he borrowed it from malthus who was a an economist writing at the end of the 1700s beginning of the 1800s and malthus essentially was um, you know, one of he he was the root of the of the claim that um, economics is the dismal science, because he held political views which were as far from progressive as you could get. He didn't even believe it was necessary to help the poor, because he argued that poverty was absolutely unavoidable. That you could never get around the fact that some people are going to be poor. So why even bother? And it, it was a it was a characteristic of one individual that became, if you like, embedded in the most powerful scientific theory of our generation. And that scientific theory gave rise to the idea that competition and survival of the fittest and our own selfish nature are the predominant human characteristics. And here's a bit of the story that you're going to love, and I do talk about it in the book, is that the person who gave that the lie, the person who showed almost in an extraordinary way how untrue that was, was a woman, Lynn Margulis. And she had to fight in an all-male-dominated scientific establishment for 10 years to have her views accepted that actually cooperation is as important a part of evolution as competition is. I love that. And I love that you tell the story of Lynn Marlis. And, you know, she actually is taking cooperation as the starting point for evolution, not competition. Exactly. Um, and she's, I, I love you. You write about her description that single cell bacteria got together. And when they kind of cooperated together, that actually provides the foundation for all of life on earth so if you were to choose one then cooperation is more predominant really than the competition and as i was uh reading you talk about this reconceptualization of the nature of evolution and really the nature of who we are as humans i was reminded of a research done by the U.S. Department of Defense in the 1950s. They wanted to know how people reacted after disasters. 
because they wanted to be militarily prepared to deal with the problems that would arise. So they sent their first team to Alaska after a earthquake had really shaken things up. And the crew from the Department of Defense arrives and the research team is ready, like they got their guns to defend themselves. And when they got there, it was completely the opposite of what they expected. Instead of people like, I'm grabbing food and I'm defending what I have against you, people had self-organized. There was one group that was helping you know, clear the rubble. There was another group helping make sure people were fed. There was another group that was helping people heal. They were taking care of each other. And they thought, oh, this must be because Alaska, and they must all know each other and be friends and neighbors. But they found in study after study, that is generally how people respond in a disaster. So I think Lynn Margulis is onto something saying, uh, you know, yes, of course, there's struggle in nature, but competition isn't the only response. Yeah. Cooperation is there and, and a vital part of who we are as humans. That, that, those studies are great. And, and, and you're right. They, were, they haven't just been in, in, uh, in Alaska. In fact, there's studies in the, from the Second World War, that the Blitz in London, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that the Germans had at that time was that by bombing centers of population, they would turn people against each other. Mm-hmm. And and it was a complete failure. The opposite happened. People were strengthened. Uh, you know, they they came together in solidarity, and 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 the bombing actually, you know, even in its own terms, was a complete disaster as a as a war strategy. It just didn't work at all. And then the British, you know, in fairness, did the same thing to the Germans towards the end of the world. Uh, the end of the war, the end of the world. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. Um, but and and it had the same effect. It, it it prolonged the war because actually people came together in solidarity against the violence that was being done to them, and because of the difficulties of the circumstances, and drew on those social resources. And we did the same thing in the pandemic. I mean, here in the UK, we have a, a responder volunteer system. Um, and and in, in the 10 days after that volunteer system, community response volunteer system was, um, was opened up, three quarters of a million people signed up to it. Because in the mm-hmm. face of a pandemic, it, they didn't say, you know, stay away from me, get off my, get out of my face. I don't want this nasty virus. I'm going to protect my, what I have. And, and, you know, the rest of the world can go hang. They said, what can I do to help? And they signed up in the hundreds of thousands to do that. There you go. And I think, you know, we need some kind of economic theory or narrative or story that really speaks to that a move of compassion and cooperation that humanity has. So I appreciate you uh, doing some deep thought about how to how to get there, how to get this new narrative. And part of what you're talking about and your escape plan from the overdrive of overconsumption is the nature of work. And I found that also a very interesting conversation in your book about uh, the difference between work and labor. So talk a little bit about how your new story allows us to return work to its rightful place. 
Yeah, interestingly, another set of ideas drawn from um, an extraordinary woman, Hannah Arendt, um, social philosopher, uh, who was born actually under under the Nazi regime in Germany and escaped through Czechoslovakia, eventually ending up in the U.S. and and along the way developing you know real insights into the things that had gone wrong in totalitarian states, but also the way in which capitalism had played into that and 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 that distinction between labor and work. It seems a little odd in a way because we sort of use them interchangeably. But she said, you know, actually, these words exist as separate words in many languages around the world. So maybe they are separate. And, and for labor, she really talks about almost everything that flows from, um, you know, maternal labor, the care and maintenance of life and, and the labor that we put into looking after our kids and caring for each other, maintaining our world. And, and, and sometimes, you know, that's an arduous place to be, she says, you know, sometimes you, you barely even have time to ask the question whether you're happy doing that. And, and in some sense, some sense, that makes it a happy place to be because you're not worrying about happiness. You're doing the things that you're doing and so you know I mean any parent will kind of recognize that how you look back and of course it is back looking back afterwards but at the time in which you were so thoroughly preoccupied with looking after your kids and had no time to think whatsoever you, you kind of you you long almost to have that sense of immersion in that task of labor and care again because it was in some sense, who you are, it was so fulfilling. And, and that, you know, Aaron says that's gone missing in capitalism. And, and, and that and she was writing in the 1950s, we can see it even more clearly now, because we can see how we have run down our systems of care, how we've how we've almost deprioritized the people who care for us. These are jobs that you wouldn't want to have that, that, that are poorly paid that are insecure. Um, and they've been insecure for for decades before the pandemic came along and then the pandemic came along and guess what we found out we found out that these are the people on which society itself depends on which our lives depend who are standing between us and the virus and the impacts of the virus and and we stood on our doorsteps and and applauded them and then a few months later, forgot even to give them a decent pay rise for the works that they're doing, because capitalism had kind of moved on, moved away. It had never really given the due respect that labor deserves on, in society and, and in our world, because it is what maintains and cares for us. These are the tasks that bring infants into the world and that see grandparents out of the world and, that, and ensure that in that space in between, we can live decent quality lives. And yet capitalism does not care for carers. And then the, the second part of that is Aaron says that, you know, when we look up from that all absorbing task of looking after ourselves and looking after others, what do we see? And, and this is absolutely fascinating. It's a real insight into, and she called it the human condition. She called that book, the human condition. We see our own mortality. We see the fact that we're not going to go on forever. We see the loss that we suffer from those who die that we love. We see our own, the sense of finiteness of our own world. And, and the task that we engage in, in work, 
um, which is where where she goes after this task of labor is the work of world building of of building things that will last because we do not last and building a sense of a society that will last even though individuals are mortal and have finite lives and building a sense of legacy for ourselves into the future in some sense as a kind of compensation for our own mortality but also as a building of a solidarity in society so that everything doesn't fall down and become impermanent just because we as individuals die. So it's a really important task, that task of work. And yet once again, we find that capitalism undermines it. And, and let me just say briefly why that is. It's because durability is what we're looking for, but they last the less demand there is to build new things, to produce more things and to create more wealth out of the production of those things. So capitalism continually tries to undermine durability. It continually in the process undermines work. And so we're left in a position where really both the labor of love and care and the work of world building have been pulled apart and are no longer useful constructs to us. And yet, Actually, their fundamental mission is to, is to protect and nurture human life on the one hand and to give sense to our own existence on the other. And, and that's what I'm arguing is that, you know, we, we retrieve those things because we must, because without them, society itself and social progress itself is lost. Right. And every homeowner will totally relate to your critique of capitalism as moving away from durability. I mean, I remember in a very practical sense growing up, we had a dishwasher that lasted 25 years. I bought one five years ago and it literally like five years, one day, then the warranty is out, boom, the dishwasher died. I was like, that's ridiculous. If we could make one years ago that lasted 25 years, why are we making them now that last only five years long? So you know, there. that's just one small example, but very practical, and that impacts our daily life. And by the way, I encourage you, if you haven't seen it yet, to check out the new film by Lin-Manuel Miranda called In the Heights. And mm -hmm. there's a section of it that speaks directly to your, on Hannah Arendt's distinction between work and labor. And they have a young man who uh, whose family's from the Dominican Republic, but he lives in New York City and he's working in the store, you know, trying to eke out a living. And he gets excited about the possibility to go to the Dominican Republic and build up a house and build up a life there. And the older woman says to him, like, why are you going to go chasing after a dream there? You've got a job here. And the young man says, here, I work to survive. There is a labor of love where he gets to build and create his own home and his own life there. And I thought, that's it. You know, so many people under current capitalism work to survive, but let's have it be a labor of love, whether it's caring for somebody else or making something that is beautiful or make something that's useful and that lasts, that's a labor of love. And sometimes so, just something that's outside ourselves. 
um, you know, that's another thing that capitalism does is it encourages to think that the only things that are worth anything are things that promote us as individuals. And, and those satisfactions, that's a lovely, lovely example. I'm going to, I'm going to have a look at that film. Yeah. But those satisfactions often do lie outside ourselves and turning ourselves towards other people. The greatest satisfactions are in service, I think, for sure. Um, let's talk about that's one work is a major piece of this uh, a new economy. Let's talk more about the foundations for a new economy. I mean, obviously, we need the new economy to be built around renewable energy, regenerative technology. We need to do everything we do more in harmony with nature so we're not destroying nature as we go along. How do we do that? I mean, that's a tall order. That's crucial mm -hmm. to a new story, a new narrative. Uh, and you've got a lot to say about that. Let's. Can you talk a minute about what you see as the foundations for a new economy? Yeah, I, in fact, I elaborated quite a lot of this in in Prosperity Without Growth, particularly in the second edition that was published um, four years ago, I think it was. And and I and I sort of see it like this: that we created an economics where all its concepts have become perverted. Enterprise is just seen as a kind of profit maximization from the continuous throughput of materials as fast as we possibly can sell them. Work is seen as a kind of penance to, to us instead of the participation in society. Um, investment is seen as almost like a gambling casino. And, and, and what we have to do, in a sense, is look at these, look at these concepts again and rebuild them, knowing what the principles are from the first place so we think about enterprise you know as as service ultimately and 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 this concept of enterprise as service you know has some remarkable applications in some in some very unexpected places and in fact the place that i got it from as an idea was the energy sector where you know in the 1970s already people like amory lovins were sort of saying you know it's not just about how much energy you supply it's how efficiently you use that and what matters to people is the service that they can get from that energy so we don't you know we don't want bits of coal and oil in our homes and gas floating through the air we want warmth and light and the mobility and by thinking in terms of service we can decouple that idea of the value of something from the material impacts it has. And that, that to me is a profoundly informative way of thinking about how we reconstitute enterprise. Just asking that simple question, what is the service that this enterprise provides? And, and many enterprises have begun to do that, particularly in the not-for-profit or, or the B Corp sector, as it's sometimes called, um, social enterprise, we call it over here, enterprise with purpose, where actually what, what they're continually framing themselves around is not profit maximization, but purpose in society. So that's one, you know, that's one really important foundation. And we've talked about work as, you know, it's another one. Work is not this kind of, um, uh, the Fritz Schumacher, the author of Small is Beautiful, once once kind of described it like this. He said, you know, in the capitalist economy, work is a, a cost to producers and a penance to the people who are employed. And so the ideal for the employer is to have output without employees. And the ideal for the employee is to have income without any hours worked. And, and, and it completely misses this enormous power that work has 
to bind us together, to be a kind of social glue, to give us a sense of participation in society. And then another foundation, which I, which I talk about um, quite a lot in post-growth, is, is what investment is and what it means. And, and of course, in the capitalist economy, it has very much been about financial investment that makes people who already have money a little bit richer, sometimes quite a lot richer. Um, and, and during the financial crisis and before the financial crisis, even it had become, as I, as I suggested before, just like a gambling casino where the winner takes all and the devil take the hindmost. But that's not what investment should play as a role in economics, because it's that point in our lives when we decide we're going to put something aside now. We're not just going to burn it all up and consume it now. We're going to put it aside and invest it in the future because we believe in that future and we want a good future for our kids. So, so investment as commitment gives us a completely new portfolio of what we should be investing in and how we should be investing and how we should be measuring the returns from that investment. And, it, and so I suppose the sense I'm, I'm trying to give Eleanor is that there's a very, there's almost like a, you know, a pragmatic, definable, meaningful program of work to be done, creating these foundations, building them, building the institutions around them and the governance of them. And, and it isn't an impossible task and it isn't, it isn't a utopian task. It's actually just going back to the basics and asking what is it that we want social progress to be and how should we build that? Right, very compelling vision there. And uh, I know you were recently at the International Monetary Fund with a seminar with them. I mean, talk about going into the belly of the beast. Their whole mission is to promote more growth worldwide. Uh, how were you received there? And do you think there's like, how can the IMF make changes that could move more towards the kind of direction you're talking about? Yeah, it was, a, it was, I was received with just extraordinary um, kindness, actually. I don't know if it was just because they were all very kind people or because um, I really had somehow struck a nerve because the two people who responded to my, um, to my intervention there, one was a senior, one was a, a former chief economist in the IMF and the other was the deputy head of the independent evaluation office within the IMF so high up people and actually both of them kind of were were very very receptive to the ideas and 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 one of them sort of said look you know I've been a professional economist all my life I've suddenly realized reading your stuff that i I've been trained to think in a particular way. I've gone on thinking that particular way. And I have been oblivious to these, these broad horizons that lie outside conventional economic thinking. So, you know, that it was an extraordinary moment. And they did say to me almost, yeah, you're in the belly of the beast here, you know, <laughs> see what's going to happen next. But actually it was a, it was a, an extraordinary productive conversation. And I came out of that thinking, well, we don't, you know, I don't know if that's immediately going to change the direction of the IMF. Although I have sent a letter to, uh, and a book um, accompanying it to um, the director of the, of the chief executive of the IMF. And, um, you know, those, those things take time, but change does happen. And, and actually, one of the discussions we had in the IMF was, you know, what should the mandate of the IMF be? 
um, because it's given to the IMF by national governments and they're basically supposed to stay inside it. And they sort of said to me, look, we, we understand these things you're saying, but we, we're the IMF, we've got a mandate from governments, what can we do? And, and my response to that was actually a very similar conversation has happened inside central banks. Um, and I remember 10 years ago going into the, the Bank of England and, and a conversation around climate change and what the bank could do in relation to mitigating the impacts of climate change and investing in things that would change our carbon dependency and being told um, that's not our mandate. Our mandate is financial stability. And, and being told that over several successive years, and yet last year in this country, the, the, the Prime Minister announced that they would change the mandate of the Bank of England to include their responsibility for climate change. And so, so you know, it's a kind of, that sort of, that change happens. It, it's been happening, it will go on happening. And so, you know, next year or the year after, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll wait for a, a, um, something from the IMF telling us their mandate has changed and they're not just about promoting growth wherever they can. Well, you're raising an important critique of where our current economic narrative has brought us and you're providing a broad and compelling vision of a new narrative, which is very exciting. What do you think people can do? Like, what can our listeners do? Like, you can go in and you can talk to the IMF. You're planting these seeds. You're talking to central banks, planting seeds so they're making some significant policy changes what what is the average person to do what what do you recommend that our listeners do who have concerns about this rampant unrestrained growth that's undermining life on earth and wanting to go more in a caring economy direction a sustainable economy that you're talking about what can we do there are so many things to do, Eleanor, really. And, and, it's, and the difficult thing is it's very different for different people because different people will have you know, their own aspirations in life, but they'll also have their own skills and the things that satisfy them in a work environment. And, and so you know, I always say to my students in a way that you, you look at, at who you are and, and what your skills are and what drives you as a passion, and that will lead you towards that place where there is something to do. And in, in the book, what I kind of point out, you know, aside from that, you know, what can I do to change the world, that social agency part of our lives, we can also think about balance in our own lives. We can think about satisfaction in our own lives. We can find the places where we're out of balance. We can look for the places where there are psychological satisfactions, more fulfilling ways to be than just having more stuff. We can look for the places where materialism has 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 crowded out our own humanity and our own sense of fulfillment and our ability to to achieve actually what psychologists call a state of flow this this very very high sense of of human experience where our skills are matched with our challenges and we lose ourselves in the task and and that ability i think you know that's one of the the take-homes for me, what I hope will be a take-home for the book, that that ability is available 
to everybody. It, it doesn't matter whether what your gender is, what your sexual orientation is, what the color of your skin is, what your race is, what your creed is. That ability to become more fully human, that to me is the ultimate prize from this life after capitalism. And, and what I want to see is, a, you know, if you like, as a vision of the future is a place where not only can we take that seriously as individuals, but we can build a society in which every individual can achieve that sort of fulfillment. I think that's fabulous. And I think a lot of people during the pandemic were asking themselves some of those questions and they're not just stepping back into what they did before they're going, do I really want to do this? I like a slower paced life. Let me try that. And speaking of the more systemic changes, in addition to what we can do as individuals, if you had one minute with President Joe Biden, what would you recommend he do right now? Um, spend money on the green recovery uh, that is about stabilizing, strengthening, and building a caring economy, the health sector, the social care sector, the, the, the bit of the economy that provides the foundations for our own humanity. It's not only a place where you know the, the work is work really matters, labor really matters in Aaron's term, but it's also a place which is inherently green because it's about people's time in the service of others rather than just using materials to build stuff. So I, I would like to see that. Um, you know, I think what he's doing is great in terms of the green recovery and the amounts and the resources that are being pushed towards it. But I think it has to go beyond just building kit um, that that is that is is not ultimately changing the structure of our societies. And it's not protecting that most fundamental part of our society, the care economy. So true. Uh, and I do wish we had a full day, but that is our hour. <laughs> And that's all the time we have. That really flew by. Uh, Tim Jackson, author of Post Growth, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Eleanor. It's been a it's been a real pleasure. Listeners, in case you've missed any of these programs, they're available in the archives. Our theme song is "Let's Give Them Something to Talk About," sung by Bonnie Raitt. I'll be back one week from today. Thanks for joining us. This is Eleanor Lacane with All Together Now.